Well, I'm, I'm glad you're here. If you, on the way in, didn't sign in or get one of the handouts, um, I'd encourage you to do that. Um, well, I want to, let me open us in prayer. Could I do that? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We pray for those who are missing from us. Uh, we know we celebrate um, new life with new grandbabies being born and there are others who are traveling to be with family and uh, in just a way. And so, well, God, we just pray for them, uh, that you'd bring them back to us safely. And we pray, God, that you would encourage us in our time together as we think about how we, the congregation, the assembled church, guard the church together uh, by appointing uh, faithful officers and by disciplining one another. So would you help us and encourage us through your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So what I want you to do is, as we've has become our tradition now, we're six weeks into this, so you're kind of used to it. You believe we've only got two weeks left of this, this, and then you move on after this, you know, so two weeks after this one. So here's what I want you to do. Um, we've kind of been building to this. So what, this is the opening discussion question you're going to talk about at your tables. What would be some problems a church might face if it had too few elders... And can you conceive of a situation where a church would have too many elders? And if so, what do you think would be too many? Really, here's what I'm wanting you to do. I'm trying to bridge the gap back to last week. So last week, we talked about uh, elder-led congregationalism. Um, we did kind of a historic overview of Protestant denominations and how they uh, function as far as church government goes. And we landed in congregationalism, and then we talked a little while about plurality of elders as a biblical model of church leadership, some of the benefits there. But I told you last week, we're picking up really kind of where we left off. We're, we're going to start again today. I hope it makes sense why, but we're going to start again today by talking about elders. And in doing so, I, I wanted to use this opening discussion as an opportunity to just kind of bridge that gap a little bit, because... So we talked about the benefit of having a plurality of pastors. Some people get stuck on that word elder. Um, a plurality of overseers, of bishops, of whatever you want to say. Remember, last week we said all these words are interchangeable. That The men who, who lead the church, pastor the church, um, it's helpful to have more than one of them. And, and so I thought this would just be a fun little discussion. There's, I don't know that there's really a right or wrong answer, but... So really two questions. Spend maybe four or five minutes, not four or five minutes on each, but maybe a couple of minutes on each. Uh, what would be the problem if, if, we, if a church doesn't, it has too few of basically doesn't have enough? Uh, and then is there such a situation where there's too many? And if so, just in your opinion, like how many would be too many? For a church our size or a church any size, you know, you may want to do it by ratio, one to whatever, so... Uh, spend a few minutes talking about that, and then I'll bring us back together. All right, so y'all are still talking, but we're it's 625, so if I don't get you back, I'm, I'm going to let you talk about some other stuff. You can come back to it. But I was listening. I heard some good things. I, I, particularly, I just want to address both questions quickly before we talk through um, guarding the church, because this, this helps us transition in, into this. First, I, I think... A lot of what I heard from the from the answers of the first question 
is certainly accurate, right? That um, there is a shared, the way that I always say this is that there is uh, a shared joy and a shared burden amongst elders. And, and it's both of those. It's a, it's a joyful burden of, of the elder chair and that, that there, are, there are highs, there are lows, there are good moments, there are bad moments. We celebrate things, we, we lament things. And one person, particularly in a church our size, one person would, would be overrun with being able to try to do that. But so would even two or three um, in, in a church our size. So um, there, is, there are definitely some drawbacks that would happen if you had too few elders. And, and I heard y'all listing things like, I heard a lot of people saying, you know, being stretched too thin, not being able to care for people, not being able to, to dedicate. You know, there, there are a lot of times a, a, so many administrative things that need to be done in the church that an elder can, or a pastor can focus on those things so much that he fails to do the thing that an elder is supposed to do is focus his time on, on prayer and the Word, right? That's that clear in Scripture. This is what elders do. And so um, there, there are definitely some, some troubled waters if there are not enough hands to, or enough shoulders to bear the joyful burden. On the flip side of that, I think it's an, and I, I really think it's an interesting question. Can there be too many? And probably the answer is yes and no. Um, the, it, it could be yes in that well, what happens if everybody in the church was an elder, right? Like you could at least conceive of a situation where there's, you know, 10 single men that all go to, ch- uh, they, they go to church together and they're, they're a church, they're preaching the word and they're, they're, you know, doing the ordinances and all 10 of them are elders. Well, where's the congregation that you're at you know, they're just shepherding one another so i mean there are like hypothetical situations i will say this one of the reasons i think this is a, a neat little exercise is because it allows us to recognize that we operate within a biblical framework not a biblical mandate that the bible doesn't tell us the answer to that question and if the bible is silent on a subject that means that we have freedom as if the Bible is subject is the Bible is silent on a subject speaking to individuals, then we have freedom as individuals. If the Bible is silent on a subject as far as the church goes, then the church has freedom. The assembly has freedom. So then we have freedom. There are churches that, that operate within a plurality of elders that have a set number. And they have 10 or 12 or 5 or whatever it is. And I think they have the freedom within Scripture to operate that way and are fine to operate that way. It would not be the way that I would choose to operate. It, was not, it would not be what I would want to do. I wouldn't want to have a set number, uh, particularly if you were required to have that set number, by the way, because of what we're going to talk about in a minute. If, if you say we have to have 10 elders, well, what if you only have eight qualified men to be elders? Well, if you're saying you have to have 10, that means you're going to have two guys that aren't qualified, Right? Or you're going to be breaking your own bylaws. And I'd rather break the bylaws than break the Bible, okay? Um, Beyond that, what if you have more men that aspire to the office than than are in that number? And so while there are churches that operate that way, it it would not be my preference. But I think they're within within biblical grounds to be able to do so because they're operating within the framework, right? Um, We operate within that framework. We... Do have one the only requirement that we have as far as our elder council goes 
is that it requires more non-vocational than, than vocational. And we have not had an issue meeting that requirement. I mean, the, you could ask the question, what would happen if we did? And we, would, we may have to deal with that at some point as a church. I don't know. Um, I, I, I lean towards, outside of some really hypothetical scenarios, I lean towards thinking there's not really a too many, okay? That if, if, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, which we're about to read from 1 Timothy 3, and so if that's, if that's the aspiration of um, a reasonable number of men, which it likely will be uh, within the congregation, then fantastic. Let's, let's continue to do things together. And then we just got to make adjustments. As, then congregations have to make adjustments along the way for what those elders may do, how those elders may function. We're having to do that. At one point in my time here, we had five elders. And then at one point earlier this year, we had 10 elders. Well, when you double the, you know, so what we did at five, there were times, <laughs> there were times we were still trying to do with 10 what we were doing with five. And guess who got frustrated? This guy, <laughs> right? Because there's, there's just some, there's some things you got to be able to do when you got more people. There's, there's some, you know, organization that's required and, but you, you're used to have operating as five or six or six. So, well, there was a time. There was, when I first came on, there were three non-vocational elders and three vocational elders. And so technically Mark didn't have a vote on the elder council for a period of time. Until Dalton and Steve became elders, um, Mark Turner did not have a vote on the elder council. Um, just so there would be more. So there was never a time where there was more, but it was tied at one point. And we, we don't have that now. All right. So we're, we're transitioning from who leads the church to how do we guard the church, but really there's a conversation that has to be had when we're talking about guarding the church that specifically addresses leadership. Because here's what we're going to see. There are two ways that the, the congregation, and I do believe this, and this is our, our series is on the church, right? It's not on the leaders of the church. It's on the church. And while the leaders of the church, elders of the church, have a specific role in guarding the church, I do believe it is the church's responsibility to guard the church. If I didn't believe that, then I would, I would have taught something different last week when we talked about Presbyterianism and Episcopalianism and Congregationalism, right? Mm -hmm. Because where, where does the final authority lie outside of Christ, our head? The final authority lies with the body, with the congregation, right? And so then who owns the final responsibility of guarding the church? The congregation does. It's where I left off last week. Kind of left us hanging last week uh, with that understanding that that it is that congregationalism guards against theological drift, and often theological drift in, in both ways. I use the example of theological liberalism, but it's not the only way churches drift. Some drift, some churches drift fundamentalist. They drift to the right, and. And that could come from leadership. And so the congregation, the, the collective group, is who guards this. Like Now elders, again, play a, play a role. We're going to see some of that. But this is, this is what we do. So we're talking about the church, that the church, how do we, as the congregation, not we just as the elders, we as the congregation guard the church. And there's two practices that we have that we're going to discuss today. We'll, we'll discuss one before the break and one after the break. 
that, that are the primary ways that we do this. They're not the only ways that we do this. In, in many ways, we do this subconsciously as, as we have disciple-making relationships with one another. As we're talking about the scriptures and we're praying for one another and we're encouraging one another and we're gently correcting one another, we very often don't think that we're guarding the church. And it's fine. It's just... It's just a natural thing that we do, that when we're asking questions of each other and we're, we're even having discussions at your table like this, in, in some subconscious ways, we're guarding the church, just in little micro ways all, all along, right? And I'm doing it in my preaching and our small group leaders are doing it in their, in their teaching and you're doing it in your discussions with, with friends within our church. But if we take a step back from that and say, okay, well, how does the congregation the collective assembly, guard the church. There's two ways. The first is by appointing qualified elders and deacons. That we actually appoint qualified people, biblically qualified, not, not just like, so when I say qualified, I don't mean that as in like secular world views qualifications, you know, like you apply for a job and it says, well, you need to have a bachelor's degree and three to five years experience in whatever that is. Like that's qualified qualified in the secular world. In, in Christian lingo, when we say qualified, what we're going to mean is qualified according to what the scriptures say these people should be, right? So there's two offices within the church that, that are being addressed here. One is elder, which we've spent a lot of time talking about last week, and we're going to talk about a little more today. These are the men who pastor the church, Shepherd the church, Pastor Shepherd, same word, oversee, right, um, the church and, and serve, as, serve as the elder, pastor elders of the congregation. They, they are the primary teachers within the church. That's what, that's what the elders are. Deacons is the other office uh, of the church. Um, deacons is a little less clear in Scripture. There's, there's less description of these guys in Scripture than there are of elders. Elders are addressed in um, the majority of New Testament books, uh, deacons are not addressed all that often uh, outside of Acts chapter 6, where we see kind of what we would call the proto-deacons, the forerunners of deacons, the first time, you know, somebody was kind of needed to lead something that wasn't the apostles. They appointed seven people, and, and they didn't even call them deacons, but that was kind of where we get the idea from. Uh, and then a couple of people in Paul's letters are called deacon or deaconess. They're, both of those words were used in Paul's letter. Um, Phoebe, for instance, was a female that Paul called a, a servant, which is what the word means. The word simply means servant. Uh, and then you get to 1 Timothy 3, which we're going to consider in a minute. And he, out, he outlines a, a list of qualifications for people serving as deacons. And within elder-led congregationalism, within churches like ours, that's what I say, when I, when I say within elder-led congregationalism, what I mean is within churches that think like us and are structured like us, deacons really run a large gambit, right? Now, I, I said at, at the beginning, there are some elder, there are some elder-led churches, right, that have a certain number of elders. Some elder-led churches have term limits on their elders. Some have requirements like we do for more, more lay elders than vocational elders. Um, if you, but you could probably categorize all elder-led churches in three or four like subcategories. But when we get to the topic of deacons, it's, it's even far, far more widespread, okay? 
there are some elder-led churches that don't even have deacons. Uh, they, they've kind of reclaimed what deacons do and have assigned that out in, in various ways. There are elder-led churches like ours that only have uh, men serving as deacons. There are elder-led churches that have men and women serving as deacon and deaconesses. They have elder-led churches where husbands and wives serve together in these places. So I'm going to deal with these qualifications together. Here, here's what I want us to see as far as guarding the church goes, right? Because we don't have time in this series to get into some of the more minutia. Yes, sir? You're talking about having men and women deacons. Yes, sir. It says in Timothy, Titus, and just one more book. Then just Timothy. Timothy's the only place where we get qualifications of deacons. Well, the three places say they shall be men. Okay. To husband and one wife. You're going to make me have it. I just said I don't have time, but you're going to make me do it, aren't you, Bill? <laughs> It's all right. You want me to address, so I'm not I'm not gonna argue. Here, here's what I'm gonna say. First Timothy three has That's what I've always been I know. I'm gonna answer your question. First Timothy three has two lists in it. Titus one has one. The the first list in Timothy three, which we're gonna read in a minute, and the list in Titus is only talking about elders. It's not talking about deacons at all. Okay? So Titus has nothing to do with deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 has nothing to do with deacons, has nothing to do with deacons, right? The only list of qualifications for deacons is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. So let me tell you where the disagreement comes in, okay? The disagreement comes in in verse 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I did not plan on talking about this tonight, but here we go. I'm going to tell you where the disagreement comes in, and we're just going to have to recognize that this is a disagreement amongst very like-minded churches. Okay, Look at verse 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Right? You see that? Now, we read that, and we think that's talking about deacons' wives. And by the way, that is a very legitimate... When I preached 1 Timothy 3, that's the way that I preached it here. Okay, you can go back and listen. You can hold me accountable to it. That's the way that I preached it. An, an equally justifiable interpretation of the original language there is the word women. You, could, you can make an equally justifiable case that verse 11 actually says women. Likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And here's why, okay? The word in Greek for woman and the word in Greek for wife is the same exact word. And so we have to choose anytime we see this word in Greek that means woman or wife, we have to choose based on the context what it means. So based on this context, you may think that means, and it's a valid biblical interpretation, you may think that means that the, he's addressing the wives of deacons. You may also think that means that he's addressing the qualification of women who are going to serve in the role as deacons within the church. I think both of those have very conservative evangelical scholars that think they're right on that subject. Um, I am, I'm, so that, what I want to say is I don't think we ought to be as certain as some of us maybe are about whichever one of those things that we hold, particularly as it relates to not what we do as a church, but how we view other churches and what they do, okay? 
Um, we were at, so you, the book that you're reading is written by Mark Dever. You know, Barry and I were there, Chris Forwald, two weeks ago. We were there on a Sunday morning. We were there on a Sunday night. We went to their members meeting. In their members meeting, they elected a woman to be a deacon at their church. They do it all the time. There is no more conservative scholar on this subject than Mark Dever. And they have, Capitol Hill Baptist Church has had women deacons for decades. Doesn't, I, I'm not arguing for it, right? The position of our elders, we have a paper on this, you can read it, you go to our website. The position of the elders of our church is that some of our elders believe we could have women deacons, some of them believe this is talking about wives. We've agreed together that we will at this time only, only ask men to serve, serve in the role, all right? So does that, I, I didn't, again, I didn't plan on talking about that tonight. Um, so let me, let, me get, let me get into what is it actually, what, what are these qualifications actually speaking about, all right? And so I'm going to see, we're going to see several things here. We're going to kind of run through these relatively quickly, all right? What I want to do, I want to just read the lists to you. Can I do that? This is why I wrote 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 the way that I did on the board. So let's, let's just read. Start in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I could talk for an hour on just on verse 1, but I'm not going to do that. Um, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. So that's Paul's instruction to Timothy about the qualifications of an elder. Then he talks about deacons, starting in verse 8. Deacons likewise. That word deacons, by the way, it, we talked about the history of words last week as it related to elders. That word deacon literally means servant. So Paul says servants, what we did was we took a word, translated it from the Greek into Latin, then transliterated it out of the Latin into, <laughs> into English, giving it a, creating a whole new word, right? So servants, deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing from themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is Christ Jesus. Then you go over to Titus chapter 1. So Paul writes three pastoral epistles. Within those, two of them include lists of qualification for elders. You'll notice the similarities here, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remaining, uh, may put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and subordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who, who contradict it. All right, so you notice the similarities? They're not identical. Written by the same guy. Two lists for elders, the beginning of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 1, are 
almost the beginning of chapter 1 in Titus, and then one list for deacons. But did you notice, even amongst the deacon list, there were a lot of things that were either the same or similar, right? And, and what's important for us to do, I think, and, and I think this is helpful for me, I hope this is helpful for you, when I preached this several years ago, and then when we wrote our paper about this, what we did was kind of thought about the way these words, the way these qualifications interact with one another, and, and really it helps us pr- to create some categories that we can say, this is the way that we ought to observe these people's lives and ask these kind of questions about them. So the first category I want to give you, is that they should be, if we're just, the elders and deacons should be uh, men of Christian character. That above all else, they should demonstrate Christ-like character. All three of these qualification lists begin similarly. They don't all begin the exact same, right? Deacons are said that they must be dignified. Uh, Elders are are said they must be above reproach. But I don't know that there's a reason for us to parse these words out and try to figure out, well, why does he say that a deacon must be dignified and an elder must be above reproach? When really what, what we ought to see is that the, these are people who exemplify Christian character. That they should, they should have lives that are marked by the change that the gospel brings in people's life. Now this, above all of the rest of these, is the hardest one to test, Okay? It's, it's one, it's why in these lists we get this feel that these things shouldn't be quick and we're actually told they shouldn't be quick. Not only are we told here, but we're told in 1 Timothy 5, don't be hasty in laying one of hands in the context of, of making new elders within the church. Uh, specifically for this reason. Because somebody may say one thing, but what they, they may say the right things. They may even do for a while the right thing. The hardest thing to test is the heart. The hardest thing to test is, is when, he's, when he's saying things like being above reproach, being respectable, being, um, being dignified. Th- these are things that just take a while to, to test. On the flip side of that coin, however, <laughs> and I'm, I'll probably mention this more than once, most of what we read when we read these lists and the church begins to consider men to serve as elders, um, what we must be, what we have to recognize is that most of these qualifications are really just the basic expectations for Christianity. And the church has a tendency of taking its officers, elders and deacons, and putting them on a pedestal and shining a light up there and be like, these are the godly men in our church. When, when we really cause two problems with that. Number one is the higher up on a pedestal you set somebody, the further they're going to fall, right? Because you're setting up sinful people. Me, sinful person, right? Barry up, sinful. We're sinful people. We're going to fail at some point, right? Hopefully not so great that you have to remove from the eldership, God willing, right? Uh, God in his grace, I'll serve as, as an elder until I go to be with the Lord. But we shouldn't, we also run the risk of setting these things up so high that we end up with the majority of the church looking at that going, well, I can't live up to that standard. The, the standard of being above reproach and being dignified 
and being respectable, shouldn't all of us want to meet those categories? Shouldn't that just be something that all Christians... And so, really, one of the goals of this is just to recognize that, that all of us are called to this. There's just but a couple of things in here that are unique to either elders or deacons. We all should all exemplify Christian character within the church because we have a regenerate church membership, meaning we're all we're all striving towards Christ-likeness. Number two, the, the elder and deacon's decision-making ability. We're told in these lists that elders and deacons must be sober-minded and self-controlled. To be sober-minded is to be able to make decisions with a clear mind, right? They must be able to keep outside influences from crowd, crowding their judgment or clouding their judgment and be able to make decisions in a, in a Christ-like way. Um, to be self-controlled is to be able to control one's actions and to be able to control one's choices. These are, these are things that we teach. Again, like, th- think about how low the bar is. These are things we teach children, <laughs> isn't it? it? I mean, anybody in the room that's raised kids, you've talked to your kids about being self-controlled, right? You have the ability not to grab things. Right? You have the ability to ask before you go into the pantry and get something. You, you, you have the ability not to blurt out. We have any teachers in there? Right? Like that's, isn't that something we teach? Like at a young age. No, no, no. If you have a question, what do you do? You raise your hand. We're teaching self-control. And so what we're saying is that the people that lead the church ought to be self-controlled. They ought to be able to respond to situations without... You know, giving themselves over to anger or fear. They ought to be of, in control of, of themselves. Now, coupled with that is in both of these lists, or in all three of these lists, uh, in verse 3 and in verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, Paul directly addresses the use of alcohol. Now, he uses different terminology here, right? So if you look at verse uh it says in, in chapter 3, he's not to be a drunkard. In verse 8, in the deacon list, it says that he's not to be addicted to much wine. And then when you go over to Titus, in verse 7, um, he, again, he uses the term drunkard. Now, we could parse these out and say, well, the elder isn't supposed to be a drunkard, but the deacon isn't supposed to be addicted to much wine. And I've heard people do this, by the way. I've heard people say that means that an elder isn't ever supposed to drink alcohol. A deacon could drink a little bit of alcohol, right? <laughs> and you laugh. They were being serious. You know, and I'm like, I don't think that's what that means at all, right? Because later, Paul's going to write to Timothy, who was elder qualified, and tell him to take a little bit of wine for your stomach, right? So Paul is actually going to encourage at least some moderate alcohol use in Timothy's life for at least medicinal reasons. So what's, what's really happening here? And why talk about alcohol use as it relates to being uh, decision-making ability, things like being sober-minded and being self-controlled? Because being drunk is the opposite of being sober-minded and self-controlled. It's what, what, I mean, right, the word sober is the opposite of drunk, right? So, so a, the, the, the word picture for sober-minded is actually draws our attention to drunkenness. And because a drunk person makes crazy choices, a sober person doesn't. A drunk person is unable to control themselves. They're unable to control their words and their actions. A sober person, so here's what, here's what Paul says. This can't be someone that is being controlled by outside substances. 
whether that's alcohol, drugs, illegal or prescription, like whatever you want to think about. We can't, we can't say, we can't allow one of these, uh, somebody to lead our church that is giving themselves over to being controlled by something others, as Paul would write in Ephesians, right? Be, be, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean, and we don't, by the way, um, have a teetotaling position for leaders of our church. Uh, actually, amongst the leaders of our church, there are varying views over the personal use of alcohol, but all within moderation, meaning that we shouldn't think that either church leaders or church members, because there's commands elsewhere, not in these lists. So again, notice how low the bar is. This is just say this person shouldn't be somebody that's, that's making decisions impaired and allowing themselves to, to do so. Number three, interpersonal relationships. Elders and deacons must be able to relate well with other people. This means that they must be well thought of by outsiders. That's one of the things that it says here. It's well thought of by outsiders. Um, and, that's, and one of the things that I saw a church do one time, we, we've not done this, but I saw a church do this, and I thought, that that at least proved the well thought of by outsiders that they took that serious is that they were bringing on a couple of new elders onto their elder board. These were men that had lived in the community. They were lay elders. They were members of the church. They were going to come on onto their elder board. Um, and they took out an ad in the newspaper. No, not like a full page ad, but they took out a small page ad. And they said, our church is, is considering these two men and they put the men's name in the paper. And if, if, you know of a reason why they shouldn't be elders at our church? Call us. Wow. Well, I don't know if we go that far, but they were at least taking serious the command that leaders of the church should be well thought of, not only within the church, but they should be well thought of outside the church. That, and, the, and then he gives us all of these lists. Or we, get, we get all of these interpersonal relationship qualities, right? That they're supposed to be gentle, uh, not quarrelsome, that they're not supposed to be violent, that they're not supposed to be quick-tempered. Basically, they're supposed to be able to deal with people in a way, even in tough situations, in a way that doesn't make them a bully. When, you, when, you, when I think, at least, of what does it mean to be you know, a person that's quarrelsome, is violent, is quick-tempered, I just think of a bully, of a person that, that uses people to get their own way. And, and will often, we'll often resort to anger and temper, threats of violence. And, and I, I would say you would be surprised. You may not be surprised to know um, that, unfortunately, this is all too common within churches. Uh, there, are, there are more than one well-known like pastors that write books and preach in a bunch of places that have been removed within the last few years from their uh, places of ministry because of because this disqualified them, because ultimately they were bullies. They they were they were they weren't any longer meeting the qualifications of what it means to have good relationships with people uh, in in their church. Pastors or elders and deacons must be able to demonstrate the patience that it takes to lead people and to minister to people. Now, do we do it perfectly? No. There are some elders and deacons of our church that have better people skills than others. Um, I won't tell you where I see myself. Well, I, I don't see myself as being one of the 
high-end people of our elders. I, interpersonal relationships sometimes I, I struggle with. I am a t- often a task person. I love people. I love teaching people. Um, large groups of people oftentimes make me nervous. Um, but more so than that, one-on-one makes me even more so because I, I tend to be driven to get something done. And I will oftentimes overlook the fact that somebody has a need because I'm driven to get something done. So there's certain checks that I have to do within my life. There's certain things our elders do to kind of watch me on that. Um, But I still hope that even with those personality traits, I would still say that I meet these qualifications. So you see, there there are going to be things that we still struggle with and seek to improve on. uh, but, But an elder deacon, they can't be... They, they, they can't be quarrelsome, violent, quick-tempered. What else? Number four, fi- financial f- fidelity. Elders and deacons are going to be in positions where they're trusted with the financial resources of the church. And so we're told things like they must not be lover of money in the elder list. We're told things um, like they cannot be greedy for dishonest gain in the deacons list. Now, again, there's no reason to parse these. They're saying the same thing, that... That if somebody wants to be an elder or deacon because they see it as a way of benefiting financially, then we ought to be really leery of this person. Now, there's, there's the extreme version of that where somebody wants to be an elder or deacon because they're going to, you know, like skim off the top, right? And that unfortunately happens. But that's not the only thing here. I, I... Sorry for those that... I just pressed pause on. I shared an illustration. I didn't want to be on the internet. So there we go. All right. I don't do that very much. So, so these can't be greedy people. These have to be people that recognize that the finances of the church, the resources of the church are not their own. They're, they're the body. Number five, marital fidelity. Elders and deacons are not required in these lists to be married, but if they are married, they need to be faithful to their marriage. The term husband of one wife appears in... All, in, in the qualification lists of all three, this literally translates to a man of one woman. Uh, historically, this has been interpreted many, many different ways. Uh, things like banning the practice of polygamy uh, to very strictly saying that someone who is divorced at any point in their history um, can't, can't serve as an elder or deacon. I think at least at the, I, you know, it, there, there can be additional qualifications to the way that our elders have viewed this, that, that we have taken some disagreement, again, here over exactly what this is talking about. And it, at its base, and it leaves at the base, and we can build on the base and be fine, but at least at the base, the parameter that Scripture is setting for us is this has got to be a person uh, who recognizes marriage for what it is and, and that respects that. And that they hold to a biblical sexual ethic. All right? So in some churches, they may interpret that differently than others. Um, but we have to at least say that they, they have a high standard for what does it mean to have a biblical sexual ethic and have demonstrated in the, that in their lives, either in their singleness or in their marriage. Uh, la- oh, no, not last. Almost last. The, the last joint qualification, what I'm calling the at-home test. Look at verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, later, he says something similar about deacons. He says something similar in Titus chapter 1. 
the, one of the best tests, this isn't the only test, because some elders and deacons may be unmarried. But if they are married, the best thing we can do is watch their marriage. It's, it, it's, it's why um, we like to spend time with elders, elder candidates, whether it's on the vocational side or even the non-vocational side. We like to have at least one or two opportunities where it's not just an elders meeting, but it's, hey, we're going to get all of our families together. We're going to eat together, and our kids are going to play together, and here's what I'm doing. I'm watching this guy, and I'm watching how he talks to his wife. I'm watching how he talks to his children. I may even ask him a couple of questions along the way, right? Because th- how, th- this is the argument Paul makes. If a man can't manage his household, if that's all in disarray, How's he going to manage the church? Now, it doesn't mean that he's going to raise his children exactly the way that you raised yours or that I may be raising mine or the way that you may think children ought to be raised or the way that, you know, Paul David Tripp writes and says we're supposed to raise children. doesn't have to. But is he he taking serious the, the responsibility of managing his household, loving his wife, parenting his children, discipling them? Last here, we get to the... We get to qualifications that are different. For elders, it's the ability to teach. In verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3, the end of that, right? He must be able to teach. Titus says something different but similar. How's he going to give instruction? He must hold the faith so that he can give instruction, right? But in 1 Timothy 3, 9, writing about deacons, it says they must hold the, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So it's saying something similar but different that these all must be men who recognize the truth of Scripture, know the truth of Scripture, but deacons don't have to be able to teach it. Only elders have to be able to teach it. The the qualification for an elder, the one unique qualification for an elder is that he must be a man that is able to teach the truth of God's Word. Now, doesn't mean he has to be able to preach like I do. Doesn't even mean you have to be able to teach in a Sunday school or small group setting, but they do need to be able to to know sound doctrine, to communicate sound doctrine to, to people. Now, we've gone way over, but I, here's what I want to say. Bill got me distracted. On a, <laughs> here, here's what I want to say. You guard the church, congregation, you guard the church by ensuring that the elders that we appoint and the deacons that we appoint meet these qualifications. That it's not just somebody I like or somebody I think is talented. Or somebody I think would even do a good job. I hear that sometimes. Well, I think they'll do a good job. Well, I hope they'll do a good job. But above all else, are they qualified? And not qualified in a worldly sense. But do they meet these qualifications? Humbly submitting themselves to the Word of God and saying, God, do I have something glaring in my life that disqualifies me from this? Here's what I want you to do. Take a, can we just shorten our break? Can we just say like a three-minute break? You go grab some water and then come back, and we'll, we'll move on. All right, are we ready? So here's what I want to do. I want to do what I did, I don't know, last week, two weeks ago. We're going to skip the middle question. Sorry, we may have time to come back to it. I don't know. Probably not. It's a good question, but I know. I spent some time on those questions, and when I skip them, I feel bad. Anyway, we'll see. I may give you the option at the end. All right, so the second. Number two. We've been talking for an hour, but now number two. Um, the second way that the, the church guards itself is through a process known as church discipline. Now, 
We've talked a little bit about church discipline. We talked about Matthew 18 a little bit. Uh, We're going to talk more about Matthew 18 today. We talked about it two weeks ago um, when we talked about the keys of the kingdom, right? And when we were dealing with membership. And I said, we're going to come back to church discipline. And so this is kind of circling back to that. I've already purposed that next quarter, I'm going to spend more time on the keys motif of Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 because I want to help people see that a little, a little bit better. Sorry, you're the first run through of teaching this. So by the time I get to the, the last one, I'll, I'll be pretty good at it maybe. But um, Yeah, so, so church discipline um, is really the, the nitty-gritty of the congregation guarding itself on the, on the individual member level. Now, when we think about church discipline, we don't have to think about a uh, specific system, even though we're going to talk about a specific system. Most church discipline actually happens across a, a table like this. It happens in a living room. It happens in a small group. It happens just in a conversation where a... a a sin is made known and a fellow church member calls someone to repentance. And you may say, well, do I really call people to repentance? If you point out that something is a sin to a person, you're calling them to repentance. So, so again, don't, don't mysticize this. And that person recognizes their sin and they're like, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. That, that's church discipline, Okay. Now, yes, it's the very top line of this thing. But this is what the church does, is, is that we guard the body by, by helping one another put off sin and put on Christ. It, as, as it becomes more a kind of an official act is often when we think about it as church discipline. But I don't want you to think about it only in that sense. I want you to think about church discipline really as being something that we're always kind of doing as we're discipling one another and then sometimes we have to do in a more serious, organized, organized way. So what is the purpose of church discipline? The purpose of church discipline is the restoration and reconciliation of believers who go astray. Now that's the first part of this. All right? there, I'm going to give you three kind of things that, three reasons why we have church discipline. That's the first. So the reconciliation and the and the restoration and reconciliation of believers, uh, of a believer has gone astray. Somebody read Proverbs 13, 24 for us. Yeah, so this is, uh, Proverbs are principles, right? Right. Uh, uh, these, these, these guiding life principles, the guiding life principle of this one. People often take this one out of context. This one is not talking just about people who read this and be like, see, it's saying we're supposed to spank our children. You're supposed to discipline your children. This isn't about whether you should spank them or not. You should definitely discipline them, right? And that goes, so the church is, we talked about the metaphors for the church weeks ago, right? The church is a family. So what, is the, what does a good family do? A good family disciplines Within the family, a good church family disciplines with, within the church. But again, a lot of this is, is one-on-one. In Galatians chapter 1, 
Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. Now notice, notice the, the wide scope of this. If anyone, right into the church, is caught in any transgression. So this is as general as you can possibly get. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is church discipline. That when you see a, something in my life that is unchristlike, or I see something in your life that is unchristlike, we seek to restore believers. That, that we say, hey, you're, you're not following Jesus in this. Now, you may not say it like that. You may. I may not say it like that to you. I may, though. But the goal is, is restoration and reconciliation. Even if they don't feel, hopefully right now, like you feel fully restored and reconciled to this church. I hope you do. If you're a member here, I hope that's the way that you feel, right? But if there's sin in your life, then, then there, there is restoration and reconciliation that needs to be done just in this kind of way that anyone would see that, that another brother or sister in Christ would see that, and they would seek to gently restore you. That's number one. Number two, to keep the sin from spreading to others. Now let's look at an illustration of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you want to turn there. I'm going to talk about it for just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read what's going on here. Paul's writing, Paul's angry at this point. It is actually reported. He's saying, I'm not making this up. This is really what people have said. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So Paul's mad and he's writing to the church and he's like, you're doing things that even the pagans won't do and here's the thing about Corinth. The pagans would pretty much do anything in Corinth, right? It was a pagan city. And they did some really pagan things in that city. And so for Paul to say that you're tolerating something amongst you that even the pagans won't do, and when he, when he tells us what it is, I mean, it's obvious, right? This, this, is, this is wrong. And he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let whom has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I, I am present in spirit, and as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are delivered this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, uh, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Paul says, if you're going to tolerate this amongst you, amongst the, the church, what's going to happen? That little bit of that leaven that's there is going to leaven the whole lump. That sin's going to spread. And... Often, most often, when sin spreads within the church, it doesn't start, right, as this really big thing. It starts with the sin of a few that's then tolerated by a group. And then that tolerance grows, and then the sin... Because once other people see that a sin is tolerated, what's their temptation? To join in the sin, because the church is not correcting it. Could you imagine this sin being tolerated within the church? Um, you, 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 You know... It's not the, not the kind of thing you would want to even imagine what happened in the church. And Paul's just incredulous. He's like, how, how in the world? But here's what he knows. If we don't do something about this, it's going to spread. 
So church discipline is for rest, restoration, reconciliation, but it is also guarding the churches, keeping sin from spreading. And as we go back to what we talked about several weeks ago, it protects the purity of the church and the honor of Christ. And in Romans chapter 2, Paul is, is writing to some people that held that they could keep the law on their own, right? And, and he, they could like please God as long as they, as long as they kept the law and that was kind of what their, their hope was in. And he says, For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That, that there are times that churches will tolerate sin to the point where the reputation of Christ is damaged within the community. And so the church, look, this isn't a challenge to nitpick one another's lives. So we're going to see this as we kind of walk through Matthew 18 in a moment. This isn't a challenge to nitpick each other's lives, but it is a reminder that the purity of the church matters because who is the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. And, and so what happens when, when the body becomes defiled, the head, which can never become defiled, by the way, Jesus will never be defiled. But when we fail to honor him, when we fail to guard that purity as the body, the name of Christ is profaned in the community. Even amongst, as he says there in Romans, even amongst Gentiles, as he would write to the Corinthians, in just a different context, even amongst the pagans, right? So even amongst unbelievers in our community, if we allow sin to fester amongst us and don't deal with it, it defames the name of Christ in our community. So then what is the method of church discipline. Well, the method of church discipline is laid out for us. Again, some parameters, some framework. It's laid out for us in Matthew 18. So if you have your Bibles turned there, we already looked at this once in this uh, series when we were talking about, again, the keys to the kingdom. We looked at Matthew 16, that confession of faith. Upon this rock, I will build my church, right? This, the, the, the front, and we, the, the church guards the front door, admitting members upon their profession of faith, checking real professions of faith. But we also guard the back door. And I, I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago when we dealt with that, that, that there's, this is still within that framework of the keys to the kingdom, the authority that the local church has here uh, on, on earth. But where, where Jesus ends with that authority, right, that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, where you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven, same exact words he uses in Matthew 16. That's following Jesus giving an outline for some parameters for church discipline. So let's, let's look at them and see kind of how these things build, right? Um, so first, we need to ask this question. Sorry, I, I jumped the gun a little bit. Well, for what sins do we need to practice church discipline? Well, first off, the Bible doesn't give us a, a totality, a, an exhaustive list. It doesn't give us a list in totality. Meaning that there are some sins we definitely need to practice church discipline on. There are a list of sins in the New Testament. There are things that, right, that are obviously grievous enough within the church for them to be listed. And so those would be some, but not, it wouldn't be just those. So we, we practice judgment. Now, again, church discipline starts really in an in a organic way with you approaching a brother or sister or brother or sister approaching you and speaking in your lives. And this is one of the things our small groups are intended to do is we speak in one another's lives and it never really rises to this point. 
But there are some sins that are present within the lives of church members, present in the lives of the church, that rises to this point where now we're kind of in this official, all right, we're going to do something about this. And this doesn't, by the way, just have to be an elder thing, uh, although often the elders will be involved. We're not told that, right? That, that when you find out about the sin in somebody's life, you as a church member, me as a church, not as a pastor, not as a lead pastor, me as a church member, as a part of the body, when I find out about sin, I'm supposed to do certain things. Number, number one is in verses 15 and 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he's not listened to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here we get these first two steps that show us that at least at first, knowledge of the sin should be kept to the smallest group possible. The goal of church discipline is not, did you notice when we were talking about the purpose of church discipline? We didn't say that it was to um, gossip about people. (laughs) We didn't say it was to spread everybody's business all over town. Like that's not the goal. So where does it begin? It begins with a one-on-one conversation. It begins with you and a friend just talking about life. And that we normalize us talking about spiritual things within the church to where it's not weird when somebody comes and talks to you about spiritual things. Right? So in a church that's making disciples, these kind of conversations are happening all the time. Now, occasionally, one of these conversations is going to happen and somebody's going to say, you know what? I don't think I'm doing wrong. Or I don't care that I'm doing wrong. Now, those are two very different responses, by the way. But when we get either one of those responses, I don't think I'm doing wrong or I don't care that I'm doing wrong, Jesus provides for us the next step, right? We take another person or two. Now, often within the context of the church, this may include an elder. This may, that, that, again, we're not told that here, but we get to, within the parameters get to practice wisdom. And so this is the time that somebody may come to me with it. They may go with another elder with it. But it may be you just go to your small group leader with it. It may be that you go to another mature Christian and you say, hey, look, I talked to you know, so-and-so about this and they said that they didn't really care. Or I talked to them about this and, and they said they didn't think that they were really sinning. So the first question is, do you think this is a sin? <laughs> right? Because maybe it's you. Maybe it's you that you're naming something a sin that's not a sin, but maybe it's not. And then you go together. And he says, why? He says, you go together so you establish the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is appealing to an Old Testament idea that you didn't entertain an accusation on just the word of one person. There needed to be evidence. And by the way, it didn't mean necessarily that it had to be two physical human beings. Sometimes evidence, particularly in our day, is like, I've got a video recording, right? <laughs> I've, got, I've got emails, right? Those things are witnesses, by the way. That evidence is witness. Back, back then, they didn't have video recordings and, and emails, right? But, but, but you're going you're gonna to get a couple of people together, and you're going to go, and you're going to say, hey, this is, this is what's happening. Are, do you recognize this as sin? Like, let's study the Word together. This may be a process. Sometimes we want to run through these. When I've dealt with people that really wanted us to practice church discipline in the life of somebody, it was like, well, I went to them yesterday, and they said, no, I want you to go with me today. And if they still say no, then y'all got to deal with this tomorrow. Um, your Christ-likeness didn't happen overnight, and we're not going to expect the Christ-likeness of all church members to happen overnight. Now, some things demand immediacy, right? 
A man cheating on his wife demands immediacy. Someone abusing their children demands immediacy. Someone, you know, embezzling from work demands immediacy, right? These things demand immediate action. And there are times we would be, we would walk through all of these steps very, very quickly. But there'd also be times that we have patience and grace with people and say, hey, well, I'm going to help you to get to, so let's sit down and study the scripture together and see what the scriptures say. Because maybe the person's just ignorant. Could just be that they're immature in this area. But let's say we've done all of that, Right? And we've kept this quiet. We've kept it to the smallest group of possible. But now discipline has to increase. And disciplinary measures should increase in strength until a solution comes about. So look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, tell it to him. Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. I mean, this is serious. That, that we're, we're amping it up. So yeah, we're, we're going to say, hey... This person is, is unapologetically living in sin. They've been confronted with the sin. We've shown them in Scripture where it's sin. We've loved them. We've tried to help them. This isn't a person that recognizes it's sin and is still struggling. This is a person that is refusing to recognize that it's sin. They're just going to live in their sin. Okay. Now, this is where a lot of churches fail. A lot of churches fail to take the step to say, this brother, this sister is living in sin, and we're going to tell the congregation. And the reason we fail at that, because it's a really hard thing to do. <laughs> and it opens you up, by the way, to things like lawsuits. Churches have been sued over practicing church discipline. So you got to have really good bylaws. It's one of the reasons being like a covenant membership church is actually important, not only for the church, but in the eyes of the law. Because when you join like a church like ours, you're saying, I'm going to do certain things. And I'm not going to do certain things. And I'm going to believe certain things and practice it so we can practice church discipline legally within our, within our culture. We would still practice it if it was illegal, by the way, but it helps to have, have those things in place if you can have them in place. Hopefully, the person will be restored. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In 2 Corinthians 7, somebody have that one to read verses 8 through 11 for us? Yeah. For even if I grieve with you, with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you what a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way, you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. Yeah, so he's writing to him about godly. He's like, this is a church he's corrected a whole bunch and grieved them, it seems. By the time he gets to the second letter, he's like, I know I've called y'all to the carpet on some stuff. But here's why. Because godly grief produces repentance. So why do we tell the church when somebody is in unrepentant sin? Not to shame them, not to publicly mock them. We tell the church, why? Because that's still an opportunity for the person to come under godly grief and repent. That's why. That's why the church is instructed to do this. Because repentance, is, repentance and restoration is the goal. And if a person is repentant, they should be immediately welcomed back. We should rejoice that someone has repented. Now, what happens when they don't? 
When they don't repent, what, is, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus says, when, when somebody is claiming the name of Christ, but yet is obviously not living a Christian life any longer, that what we do is we do exactly what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 5. We put them out. And, and why do we put them out? Because we have a church to guard. We have a church to protect. We have a head to honor. And if we allow people to remain within the body, not we're all sinners, but if we allow people in open and unrepentant sin to remain within the body that aren't willing to, to put off sin and put on Christ, we damage the body. So we have the responsibility of putting people out of the church. That is anathema in a lot of, particularly a lot of Baptist churches. They don't even want to think about putting people out of the church. But it's actually a thing healthy churches do. Healthy churches take regenerate church membership seriously. And part of that, and the responsibilities that come with that authority, and part of that authority is saying, we no longer recognize you as a professing brother or sister in Christ because you are unwilling to deal with your sin. A Christian that is unwilling to deal with their sin is no longer recognized as a professing brother or sister. Because... And we're not talking about like minor little things that people are trying. Major thing. Like a Christian would not do these things that you are doing. Repent, brother. Repent, sister. Be restored to the church. But if you won't, then what's our responsibility? It's to follow the, the teachings of Jesus and put them out. Now, 1 Timothy 5. I'm going to go over. I apologize. If you've got to go get your kids, go get your kids. 1 Timothy 5 deals with something. Because this is kind of round. I've got to do this because it kind of rounds out the whole lesson here. 1 Timothy 5, starting at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus with elect angels, I charge you not to keep these rules without, pre, uh, without uh, prejudging, doing nothing, from, with, uh, doing nothing from partiality. So elders are not immune to church discipline. Actually... We live a higher standard. So if an elder sins, meaning an elder breaks his qualifications, and it rises to the point of disqualification, well, here's what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 5. And the church puts that person away quietly, which, by the way, happens all the time. A pastor will sin, an elder will sin, and the church will get up and they'll say something like, oh, Brother so-and-so is, is, is resigning and he's going to pursue opportunities elsewhere. Now, that may just mean he's going to pursue opportunities elsewhere. But it may also mean that those people don't have any guts. And then they're unwilling to actually say, this is what's happened. And listen, you, I'm just going to tell you what, what, what would happen here. If, if one of the brothers who is, a, is an elder here were to send to the point of disqualification, you would know about it. As long as I'm here. And I, I believe as long as other elders that are here are here, you, 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 we can't, you, you can't sweep things under the rug. Now, I think this is a command to not do that. This is a command in Scripture to not just practice church discipline from the top down, but more so to practice it from the bottom up. That, and and there's, there's more to, to say here about that. But, but we need to understand we don't, we don't have you know, two classes, one that is disciplined and one that is not. 
the 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 elders are actually held to a higher standard. And I would I would put deacons in that as well. Church leaders, officers of the church are going to be held to a higher standard. And their sin, not again, not every little sin. I'd be up here confessing every single week if it was that. But sins that disqualify, the church needs to know about. And this is a direct command, right? Tell the church. Why? So everyone will live in fear. They're an example to the congregation. All right. I had good questions here about things like evaluating, equipping potential elders and deacons, what happens when a church fails to practice church discipline, what damage can be, can be done. Unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about those things. If you want to hang out and talk with the person at your table, if you don't have anywhere to go, you could do that. But let me pray for us. I'm going to be better at time management next week. I say that every week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a church I, I, that takes holiness and sinfulness seriously, um, that are willing to have hard conversations with one another. I, I thank you, God, that I am sure that numerous, maybe even countless, difficult conversations calling people uh, to repentance of their sin have taken place in the life of this church, and I don't even know about them because the person was confronted and repented. God, in those moments where they aren't, would you give us strength? Would you continue as we have prayed diligently as a congregation, continue to raise up godly men to serve as elders, deacons of our congregation? Um, So, God, that we can share together the joyful burden of shepherding the church. Help us to guard the church so that we can honor the name of Jesus in our community, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for being here. Sorry for talking a lot.